And I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Next week, of course, is Easter Sunday. It's one of the days of the year that we will see here, as most other churches in America see, in most cases, the highest attendance that they'll have the entire year. Crowds will flock to worship services, multitudes will sing songs, many will take communion, many will do things in the name of Christianity, in the name of worship, and yet in the end, it will be perhaps one of the most grievous days of all the year in the eyes of God. Some people might be surprised to hear that. They might assume that God would be happier that many people are in church and happier that they're not out rather doing something else or that they are somewhere else. They might assume that God would rather them uh, be mouthing words of praise or even, or even singing songs, uh, even if from hearts of unbelief. They might assume that God would rather have that than have them spouting off words of unbelief or even pursuing activity in the world. Some people might assume that, but they would demonstrate how little they understand about God and how little they understand what the Scripture says about worship. To that end, I want to turn your attention this morning to a traditional Easter passage. Luke 19 is a passage that we often associate with Palm Sunday. Today, of course, is what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, the day when the church typically celebrates the entry of Christ into Jerusalem, sometimes called the triumphal entry. It was the occasion when the crowds met Christ coming in to their city and laying down palm branches along the pathway as he entered riding the colt of a donkey. And I want us to look at this passage this morning because it it's one of the most significant scenes from all of Christ's ministry. In fact, it's one of just a handful of passages which are recorded by all four gospel writers. It must have been such a memorable event that it was inescapable by all who participated in it. And yet, it's one of the most revealing passages in all of Scripture regarding the grief of our God and Savior over misguided worship. In fact, one of the most remarkable contrasts that you'll find anywhere in Scripture as Jesus appears in these verses at the height of His popularity among the crowds with shouts by tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand people shouting uh, uh, songs and, and giving voice of adoring praise And yet the whole scene ends with Jesus weeping. In fact, wailing with grief because of the deception of their worship. In fact, I've titled this little section, The Weeping of Jesus Over Misguided Worship. The Weeping of Jesus Over Misguided Worship. Now, the the story unfolds for us in a series of different scenes, each one of them sort of driving us closer to the collision of perspectives, a climax with the anguished cry of Jesus because of the hardened and self-deceived hearts of literally tens of thousands of shouting and adoring worshipers all around him. 
And Luke sets the scene for us, first of all, in verses 28 through 34, with a secret preparation, a secret preparation. He writes, when he had said these things, that's a reference to what he taught in Jericho as he made his final approach to Jerusalem. He passed through that city as he began the ascent up the hill to Jerusalem where he had uh, stayed, remember, in Jericho at the home of Zacchaeus and had taught there, taught parables there. When he had finished those things, he went on ahead, we're told in verse 28, going up to Jerusalem. And, and he drew near Bethphage and Beth, uh, Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. So G- Luke is simply describing for us his, his final approach here before his Passion Week and probably arriving at Bethany just outside of Jerusalem on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. Jesus, like a traditional Jew, probably wouldn't have traveled very far on the Sabbath. And so John's gospel even tells us explicitly that he arrived here six days before the Passover, and by Jewish reckoning, that would have been on Sunday. So we're told he, entered, we're told he enters Bethany and stays at the home of Mary and Martha, and they held a dinner in his honor. And this, of course, was that memorable event where where Mary pours a pound of costly perfume over Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair. And Jesus celebrates her sacrifice and her worship with, with great love and affection for her that night. All of this took place on Sunday night. And sometime then after, Luke tells us uh, there at the end of verse 29, that Jesus sends two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Probably they're in Bethany, so probably this is the village of Bethphage, where he says, you will enter and you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, it's not clear when exactly Jesus gave all these instructions. I presume that it's the next morning because he talks about, they talk about bringing the colt back and immediately placing garments on it and Jesus immediately going into into Jerusalem. And so probably this all took place the morning, the next morning, Monday morning, outside the town or outside the village of Bethany. This would have been just a small village somewhere along the the pathway. These little villages dotted the way as you made your final approach toward the Mount of Olives and then uh, passing along the southern side of it and then coming back north because the Mount of Olives would have sat between Bethany and Jerusalem itself. These small villages would have, of course, swelled during this time with thousands and thousands of pilgrims who were in the, in the vicinity because of the festival of Passover. And, and we're told that Jesus stays here, but he sends his disciples on to get this animal who's tied up, this retrieve this colt, and they enter the village, and there they'll find this animal, and they're simply to untie it and bring it. Now, It sounds a little suspicious to begin with, certainly. In fact, Jesus prepares them because probably in their minds, they're thinking, they're not going to let us just take their animal, right? Jesus says, if anyone asks you, you're to explain to them 
the Lord has need of it. Now, Jesus might have just supernaturally known that there was an animal there. And he might have supernaturally known exactly what question was going to be asked. And he might have supernaturally even decreed that as strangers were were finding that their animal was suddenly being taken from them, that they were just going to be compliant and not really care and just be satisfied that the Lord had need of it. But more likely, this was all prearranged. This was some sort of code language to inform them that these disciples were with Jesus. That was probably the case because there was something of a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. Just two weeks earlier, he had been in Bethany, and at that time he had created quite a stir by raising a man from the dead, a man named Lazarus. In fact, the town of Bethany to this day is still known by the name of its most famous resident, Al-Lazaria. It's actually a a Islamic village today, but still known as the place of Lazarus. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he creates, as you might imagine, quite a stir. And not only that, among the residents of the area and among the residents of Jerusalem, but really among the political elite, they feel a sense of threat, political threat, military threat, because they're afraid that Jesus is going to stir up some sort of mob and with that, that he might bring on them the, the uh, repercussions of Roman military might. And so we read over in John 11, the very final verse of that chapter, it says, The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And so as Jesus reenters Jerusalem, he probably is taking several steps to guard the secrecy of his location, probably even prearranging with the owners of this cult that he might have use of their animals without disclosing where he is and even putting them in jeopardy. Very similar, by the way, 22, later on, Jesus will send Peter and John to prepare an upper room and he tells them, look, just go into Jerusalem and you'll find a man carrying a pot and follow him and he'll go to a house and go ask the owner, we need, the Lord needs his place and he'll give it to you. Men, uh, we understand, didn't normally carry water pots in those days, so this was probably some prearranged sign to protect Christ and his disciples from being exposed. All of this just sort of speaks to the environment into which Jesus was entering Jerusalem. It was tense. Everyone knew that he was a hunted man. And so the disciples go and find this colt. They give the secret sign and they bring the animal back to Jesus. And all of this sets the stage for the second scene that Luke introduces to us, which in verse 35 is the humble presentation of Christ. Luke simply tells us they brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, Luke simply tells us it was a colt and that there was just one animal. But Matthew, who has a tendency to give more details, actually tells us there were two animals and that they were both donkeys. And so we assume that the colt Jesus was riding was quite young, not only because no one had ever sat on it, but because 
Probably they were bringing along its mother in order to keep it somewhat calm. And so they bring him the colt and they bring the mother with it. And they all sort of uh, are mystified by all this. Luke is only giving us the bare facts. They all don't understand what's going on. Matthew, however, fills us in. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 4. He tells us here. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a lowly mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Matthew gives a quotation there from Zechariah 9, 9. That was a passage that recounted the judgments that God was pouring out on the nations that surrounded Israel. Those judgments were fulfilled through the conquering march of Alexander the Great. And Zechariah speaks of the might of his army and the fear that he would strike in the hearts of those who come against him, the bloody path that he would leave because of his military campaign and all of his chariots and all of his armies and all of his soldiers and all their weapons and all the blood and all the gore and all of the the destruction that came in his pathway. And then Zechariah sets it in contrast to Israel's king. He wouldn't come on a horse. In fact, he wouldn't come in a chariot. He wouldn't come with an army. He wouldn't come with weapons. And he wouldn't come with any of that. That's normally what kings did. Normally, whenever they rode victoriously into cities, they would be mounted on some glorious steed, or they'd be pulled by a, a whole host of steeds behind their, in, their, in their glorious chariot. But this is a king who's different. He's riding in on a, on a donkey, a beast of burden, as Zechariah says, lowly, or uh, they translate it gentle. The word is lowly in the Hebrew. A very unglamorous animal, to say the least. And not something anyone ever took to war. Donkeys were rarely ridden to begin with. But they were occasionally used as signs of peace. As a matter of fact, when David wants to present his son, Solomon, as king, he instructs in 1 Kings one thirty three that he be brought into the city on a donkey. David did that in order to indicate that while his personal reign was filled with war and bloodshed, that of his son was to be one of peace. All of this is what's behind the retrieval of this donkey. Not only the fulfillment of prophecy and definitive message, but giving a message by its own presentation. Jesus wasn't here in armed conflict. He wasn't here to overthrow oppressors. He wasn't presenting himself to Israel as the king in all of its might. He certainly wasn't uh, coming with glorious procession. There's no beautiful horse, no chariot, certainly no cavalry. This simple presentation 
is a word to Israel of what Jesus will eventually tell Pilate in very explicit terms. My kingdom is not of this world. That is to say, it's not like anything that you think or conceive or have ever seen. It won't be anything like that. And for those who are anticipating some grand entry, some glorious spectacle, and indeed we're told by Luke that word had begun to spread that he was in Jerusalem and that there was anticipation and that people were preparing themselves For all those who were hoping for some sort of magnificent entry, there must have been some sense of disappointment as they saw what he was traveling on. No one got it, though. In fact, John tells us they didn't understand it at all until after the resurrection. Even the disciples didn't understand any of this. It certainly didn't fit their paradigm This wasn't the Messiah they were hoping for. This isn't the king that they wanted to come out to honor. And yet all this leads us to another, I guess, scene in this, demonstrating the clash of these perspectives, and that is the confused expectation of these people. Back over in Luke 19, we're told that as Jesus begins his march, if you will, into Jerusalem. The crowds came out, enormous crowds. We're told by Josephus that that Jerusalem would have swelled to almost over two million people during this festival, during his day. And so, so Luke mentions a whole multitude, a multitude, he says, of disciples. We know they weren't all disciples because verse 39 says there were some Pharisees in the crowd. So this is just a general term of people who were loosely associating themselves with Jesus. In fact, John tells us that the Pharisees were concerned in in John 12, 19, that the whole world had gone after him. So in their perception, everyone was coming to this procession. And as they showed up, Luke tells us, that they were laying down their coats. And John tells us palm branches because as they saw Christ coming and they saw Him on the, on the, the, the donkey, they just had to be overcome that this just won't do. I mean, they had to do something to try to dress up the scene. They had to try to make some effort to lay down some sort of royal carpet to give to Christ. Jesus' humble presentation didn't come off right to them. So despite what they see, they're still holding on to their misguided concept of who this Christ is going to be. He's going to be the mighty conqueror. He's going to be the one who frees them from all oppression. He's going to be the one who reproduces those miracles for them on a daily basis. The raising of Lazarus, the feeding of the 5,000 over and over again. They think he's going to bring blessing into their life. And so they're worshiping him for who they want him to be. They're worshiping Christ, a Christ of their own making. In fact, back in verse, 9, uh, verse 11 of chapter 19, uh, uh, Luke has already told us that as Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem, because he was near Jerusalem, 
And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, they had all these misguided expectations, in other words. He begins to ride and they throw their cloaks down. And the whole multitude, we're told in verse 37, begin to rejoice and even praise God with loud voices for all the mighty works they had seen. As I said, Luke clarifies specifically, excuse me, John clarifies specifically that they were coming out because of Lazarus' miracle. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It wasn't fitting their paradigm. They couldn't have a king entering on these kind of humble circumstances. They had to make it as noble as possible. They did all that they could to correct what Jesus was doing and to dress it up to fit their expectations. A man sitting on a donkey without even a proper saddle, just some coats. And so they just start cutting down palm branches and throwing them out and, and proclaiming him to be the king. They were just mouthing by the words, by, by the way, words from Psalm 118, the final of these Hallel Psalms that we're even reviewing here. Mouthing the words, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They would sing these over and over again as they went up to the Passover. And so they were just plugging in some familiar songs. Everyone knew these songs. The whole multitude would have been singing them all week. Matthew tells us the crowds were giving praise to Jesus as the son of David. Mark says they were crying Hosanna and blessing God and saying, quote, uh, blessing God for, quote, the coming kingdom of our father David. John mentions that they were calling him the king of Israel. So it's pretty clear what was in their mind. They clearly have a hope that Jesus is going to be the promised Messiah and usher in the glorious kingdom of peace and prosperity. In this matter, excuse me, at this point it didn't matter that he was riding in on a donkey. It didn't matter that he didn't have an army yet. They were determined to make him in the image they wanted. That leads to our fourth scene in verse 37 and 38 there again, which is their questionable adoration. Luke tells us they were praising God, he even says they were singing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That is a phrase that's used through the Old Testament again and again to speak of the worship of God. Glory in the highest or glory to the most high, another way of saying that this is these people were caught up now in worship of God over these events and they were praising Jesus many of them with no knowledge of what he taught or no interest in what his true message was their praise wasn't based on his message wasn't based on his personal claims it was based solely on their expectation of what Jesus is. This is the essence of superficial worship. The essence of superficial praise. And you understand this, don't you? That people gather all the time and have gathered for centuries to praise a Jesus 
who's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's a Jesus of their own making. This all sounded like real praise. It looked like real praise. There was an enormous crowd. But most of these people, the words on their lips and the joy in their hearts had absolutely no connection to a real understanding of who Jesus is. And so this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is as much a display as any part of his ministry of how close people can be to Christ, how enthusiastic they can be about Jesus, how verbal they can be in their praise, and yet how they can completely miss what he's all about. How men and women in the name of Christ can hold on to beliefs and they can hold on to religion that actually contradicts, defies, and opposes everything that God's about. I mean, this entry is about a people who make a claim to being a disciple, who claim to seek His kingdom, who claim to love His glory, and yet, at the end of the day, they do not know Christ. They do not comprehend His kingdom. They do not understand His glory. This is false worship. The same kind of worship that people try to give Jesus all the time. Worshiping the idea of what they think Jesus is rather than what He truly reveals Himself to be. And yet through all the crowds and all the excitement and all the cheers, Jesus is unimpressed. In fact, he's less than unimpressed. He's deeply grieved. Far from finding any level of joy or comfort or whatever in their enthusiasm, he's driven to a deeper reflection in the midst of this. And that leads to our final scene that shows us just how clearly there were two Jesuses in the picture here. The Jesus who presented himself to them with his true message and the Jesus of their own imagination. Jesus, Luke's final scene here, a mournful evaluation. A mournful evaluation. Luke tells us that some Pharisees were in the multitude, verse 39, and said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I mean, that just kind of indicates the intensity of the praise. They were worried that the Romans were going to pounce on this episode. And so they asked Jesus to quiet his disciples. And his response is simple and it is profound. He says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Well, what does that mean? I mean, it could be proverbial, some sort of like, you know, God saying that, that, that the creation itself is going to speak His praise. It could mean that the display of Christ's glory is so magnificent in the fulfillment of prophecy and in the presentation of His humility, so glorious and all of that, 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 that praise was demanded from the inanimate creation. But I don't think that's it. In fact, it's a very unique construction in the Greek here. It, it's, a, it's a conditional phrase using a particle aeon and a future tense verb. A very peculiar translation. 
He's not talking, in other words, about something that will take place in the present. He's talking about something that will take place in the future. He's saying not if, he's saying when. When they become silent, then the stones will cry out. And I don't think he's really talking about praise at this point. In fact, if you do a little study on that that terminology, crying out, what you find in the Old Testament is that it is a phrase that's repeatedly used of judgment. You talk about, uh, you talk about in Genesis when, when Cain kills Abel and, and we're told that the ground, the blood in the ground is crying out against him. Or we read about in Isaiah how the heavens and the earth are crying out against Israel because of their disobedience. Or even some people think this is a direct quotation of Habakkuk 2.11 which speaks about how the walls of the buildings of the Chaldeans that they had built on the on the bloodshed and the injustice of their campaigns, will cry out in judgment against them. And you, you see this over and over and over again, how this, this statement about stones and, and buildings and ground crying out, it's always crying out in judgment. And I think that's, not, uh, that's what Christ is talking about here. It isn't necessarily the stones that will be crying out in praise. He's anticipating a day when these fickle people will so quickly set aside their praise, they will cease their praise. And these people who are so wrapped up in the moment with adoration will just as quickly set it aside when Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. We've seen it, haven't we? People get swept up in a crowd, swept up in a moment, swept up in a in a season of life when they think that God's going to do something for them and then within a week, within a month, within a short period of time, they're gone. And it's at that point, Jesus says the stones are going to cry out. I think that's confirmed by the following verses because Jesus rounds the southern tip of the Mount of Olives. He, uh, he emerges from the little gorge where the road is set there and rising over the horizon on his left-hand side was the city of Jerusalem itself. And, and as he draws near and when he sees the city in verse 41, he weeps over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The stones will cry out. The stones will cry out when they are ripped down by the Roman armies who in all their wrath and fury have slaughtered every living individual in Jerusalem. And when they can find no other blood to spill, Josephus says, out of their continued rage, they will begin to rip the stones of the buildings apart. And Jesus looks out over the city and he begins to weep. And, and his eyes aren't just watering up as he tops this hill, looking at the city. He is wailing, wailing 
with uncontrollable tears. It's a very unique word for, for, for weeping here. It's actually used just a few other times in every case used of people who've lost loved ones. It's used, for example, of the widow of Nain who already has lost her husband and then loses her only son to death and she, she is overcome with grief and begins to wail because of her sorrow. And it must have been striking to see Jesus in the midst of all these cheers of jubilation and all these shouts of praise to be so overcome by grief and by tears that he just begins to wail in front of people. And he cries out so that they can hear him. If you had known, if you had just known what was truly to make for your peace, if you just would understand, he says. But it's hidden from your eyes. Amazing. Everything they wanted from God. Everything they wanted from Jesus. Everything they prayed for and they thought that he was going to bring to them. And he wasn't going to bring it. And yet because of all their unmet expectations, they missed him. He missed who he truly was. They, they offered him his worship, their worship for a season. And when he failed to meet their expectations, they'll turn away from him. And Jesus looks out over the hardness of their heart and the blindness of their eyes. And he weeps. What must he do with all the false and shallow praise that's offered to him on a regular basis? For all the people who are coming to him for a Jesus of their own making. They're showing up in houses of worship just like this every week with some deal that they want to make with God. And yet they'll come that close to Christ. They'll come that close and they'll turn away. And Jesus weeps saying, if you just knew, if you only knew what really made for peace. You want to know what makes for peace? You want to know what brings the end of all the pain, suffering, and hostility? It's the end of your hostility to God. Scripture says that the peace you need isn't outward peace. It's peace with God. Because you, you are the enemy of God. Scripture says you're hostile to Him. You disobey His commandments. You turn away from His laws. You revolt against His rule all the time. What you need is peace with God. And what a shame if you would come into His house, participate in the songs of His praise, hear the preaching of His word, and all the while not even understand what it is that makes for peace. J.C. Ryle says, The last day will probably show the world that there were seasons in the lives of many who died in sin when God drew very near to them, when conscience was particularly alive, when there seemed to be a step between them and salvation. Those seasons will probably prove to have been what our Lord calls the day of visitation. The neglect of such reasons and seasons will probably be at the last one of the heaviest charges against your soul.
What a shame to have people come so close to God and miss Him. So close. But how instructive for us to see our Savior weeping over these people. He wasn't smug in his understanding of the God's sovereign choice of those who be saved. He wasn't comfortable in, in all of his uh, theology and his understanding of God's control over all events. He didn't look at these people and just get, uh, just get uh, miffed at them because of their superficial praise. He, he didn't look at them and and smirk. He didn't look at them and get angry. He didn't look at them. And with any of those things, he looked at them with tears. Broken hearts. Grieved. J.C. Ryle goes on to say, we know little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble but a man of this spirit is very unlike David who said rivers of water flow down from my eyes because men keep not your law he's very unlike Paul who said I have great heaviness and continual sorrow on my heart because of my brethren my kinsmen who know not the Lord above all he's very unlike Christ who felt who felt tenderly about wicked people and the disciples of Christ Ought to feel likewise. What a heavy burden. What a heavy burden on our hearts. As we gather for worship each week. As we look around us at many, many who gather. What a heavy burden on our hearts there ought to be. That each one of them would worship God in truth. What a heavy burden. That we would look around us at the lost state. Of our neighbors and our friends and our family. And not long to have them find God in a day of visitation. My challenge to you this morning is, as you prepare for Easter, as you think about the coming week in your life, my challenge to you is to think deeply about our Savior. To think deeply about what was going on in His heart this final week. To think deeply what His burdens were as he prepared for the celebration of communion with his disciples and the celebration of his final sacrifice for us. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you to bow together. And while you're doing that, I just want to challenge any of you who are here today. We don't have an altar call, but there's an invitation. There's always an invitation. That you would hear the word of the Savior. And that you wouldn't leave this place without responding. That you who have been fleeing and hiding from God. And trying to get close enough without ever yielding your life. Would understand that that's close enough only to send you to hell. God desires your whole heart, your whole life. He wants you to be his disciple. By laying down your life. So that you can finally find it. Father, we're grateful this morning for your word, so thankful to hear it and to see it and to understand again the heart of our Savior. So much that takes place in the name of worship to him is a far cry from who he is and from what he taught. 
Guard us, Lord, from ever doing that. Guard our hearts from ever coming to offer ourselves as living sacrifices when we withhold so much from you. Father, this week we want to be instruments of your praise, but we also want to be brokenhearted with your compassion and love for the lost. We pray that you would do that. Give us these tears. Give us this love so that we can truly worship our Master and Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.